This week on Water Flying, I am joined by Melissa Grabiak, longtime Seaplane Pilots Association volunteer and now the founder of Bel Air Seaplane Service. You are listening to Water Flying, a show dedicated to all things seaplanes. Brought to you by the Seaplane Pilots Association. My name is Steve McCoy. I'm the executive director of the Seaplane Pilots Association, which is the world's largest nonprofit advocacy organization dedicated to the protection and promotion of the water flying community. Climb aboard! We're about to start today's episode. Well, welcome back to another episode of Water Flying, and I am thrilled to be joined by my good friend, SPA volunteer, lifetime member, and now founder of Bel Air Seaplane Service, Melissa Grabiak. Thanks for having me, Steve. It's <laughs> wonderful to be here. It is. I haven't seen you in a long time. It's good to get together finally. It is. We're like two seaplanes passing. In the night. <laughs> <laughs> So, Melissa has a fascinating story, and it goes back to the very beginning of me coming on as executive director of the Seaplane Pilots Association in 2011, and we ended up, I ended up getting an invitation to go speak at an EAA chapter at Fort Lauderdale International Airport, and of course, I am a Fort Lauderdale native, so I could not turn that uh, invitation down. And uh, through that, I fortuitously met Melissa and her father. And we have been on a journey now for 11 years. We've covered a lot of miles. We've done quite a bit of flying. And uh, we have hopefully impacted seaplane flying in a positive way. It has been a very incredible journey with all sorts of nooks and crannies and ups and downs and turnarounds and wouldn't change it for anything. And she was here during the years where we actually, you'll probably hear here shortly, but uh, some of the years where we were more of a grassroots effort and we were very uh, stringently watching the budget because uh, SPA was coming out of kind of a down period. And uh, she was there actually working harder at that point and dealing with worse uh, circumstances than a lot of our volunteers today. So uh, thank you for being there in that trying time. You're welcome. It was so much fun. <laughs> Everything for the cause. So Melissa comes from an aviation family, uh, which has influenced her tremendously. And that's always how I like to start these shows out. So Melissa, tell us a little bit about what got you interested in aviation, because it really started with your family, your upbringing. It did. Yes. So I'm actually a third generation pilot. My grandfathers were in World War II in the Marines and various aviation capacities. One saw service in the Pacific Theater on an SBD Dauntless. Wow. Yes, so cool. Then my father, he used the GI Bill to learn to fly and did more of a commercial pilot aspect, tried to become an airline pilot, and the timing just was not on his side. But while I was growing up, he started to build an airplane, a uh, glass star. Yes. So that was around my life as a child in our EAA chapter and all the fly-ins and other various events that would go on. But I wasn't really interested 
in aviation at the start because I was young and as a child, you don't always understand a project of building an aircraft. An airplane, yeah. It's, you know, it's a huge undertaking. So I kind of went my own way and went into the arts and went to had a career in the arts that was beginning to burgeon. And then I decided I wanted to learn how to fly as something to do with my dad as fun. And I didn't have any expectation of what would happen other than let's just have fun together. Yeah. And, you know, it has special significance to me because I literally grew up riding my bike around Fort Lauderdale Executive Airport where your dad built the airplane and where it was hangered. And that was kind of like my backyard. My high school football stadium was right there at the airport. And uh, I took my first flight lessons at, at Cav Air back in 1983 <laughs> <laughs> uh, at Executive. And I used to go up uh, uh, at 12 years old. I would tell my parents I was going to a friend's house and I'd go to Dunkin' Donuts and get two dozen donuts. And I'd pick up the phone at the base of the control tower at Fort Lauderdale Executive. And um, they, I would say, look, guys, can I come up? I've got donuts. And the door would buzz, and up I would go to the tower and sit up there and learn all day and ended up working at an aviation parts business that we moved onto the airport, my first airplane that I purchased with uh, Mary. Um, ended up being hangered at Fort Lauderdale Executive. So lots of roots there. Yes, our it's unusual to find another Fort Lauderdale native Yes. With the history. Usually everybody's from away. From somewhere else. Yes, yes. we are actually Fort Lauderdale natives. <laughs> <laughs> there are people that do, yes. that are born in Fort yes. Lauderdale. <laughs> and we're two of them. <laughs> so, which was a, an amazing life. I wish um, everyone could experience kind of the upbringing I had in Fort Lauderdale and the beach life and the intercoastal life and between airplanes, cars and boats. It was an amazing place to grow up. So uh, your dad got involved in EAA because he was building the airplane, ended up being the president of the EAA chapter. Correct. And then I can't remember if it was you or your dad that reached out to me. It was me. I I thought so. Yes. So at the time, my father, a little history on him, he actually got his seaplane rating with Jack Brown. At Brown's in Winter Haven when he was 24 years old. Not John Brown. Yes. Mr. Jack Jack Brown. Brown. So that's very significant because everyone associates Brown seaplane base and they're like, oh, I did my ride with Jack Brown or I want to learn how to uh, fly from Jack Brown. Well, Jack unfortunately passed away in 1974. So very few people that come on the show or that I speak to actually have had uh, that experience where they actually flew with Jack. Yeah. And I wish I would have. Yeah, he was actually lured down with postcards that he sent away for from upstate New York that had ladies in bikinis. On I have the those. Yeah, I have some so of those. So he was like, why am I here in the winter when I can be down there? And he tells this great story that Jack teased him about, because he was going to sleep in his airplane <laughs> that night. And he's like, don't do that. The alligators are going to come and get you. So <laughs> there was this whole shenanigans that happened that if my father was here, he would tell it much better. But There's a whole uh, you know period of time that's come and gone. But I, I actually have several of these postcards where Brown's used to market coming to the seaplane school. And at that point, I think it was Jack's Air Service at that point. And um, they had a white and red cub with a woman on a bikini on the float. Yes. Uh, That's funny. I didn't know that part of the story. So, yes, I'm glad. And I actually took some of those postcards 
to John Brown recently, and I was like, you remember these? And they had a Lakeland address, not a Winter Haven address on the cards. And uh, then I still have my certificate uh, from John Brown getting my rating in 1983. And, you know, it's kind of nice to go back 40 years later and say, John, look, here's what you signed 40 years ago with me. Yeah, that's incredible. Yeah, so he did his rating. He did his rating. So then when the timing just kind of worked out that way, he's like, hey, for your 24th birthday, would you like to go get your seaplane rating? You like boats, you like flying, let's combine them. I said, yeah, that sounds awesome. So we went and we did that. And then I got really got the bug. And I said, I want to have a seaplane business one day. And we start talking. And now we go home to Fort Lauderdale. And at the time, I was the president and founder of the Fort Lauderdale chapter of women in aviation. And I was getting working on getting our speakers together. And we, my father and I had met Bill Schmalz. Okay. Our field director that lived down in Boca. Yes. We had met him through something else and, oh, it was actually at a Young Eagles event. That's what it was. Okay, He came to Pompano and I said, well, why don't you speak? Come speak at, we'll do like a a meeting. You'll be Mm -hmm. a, a guest speaker for us. And so that's how you and I Steve is I invited you for that January meeting because it's like well we're all doing the same thing we have a bunch of people who love aviation let's learn more about seaplanes so I completely had the bug at that point (laughs) completely had it so this was like one of the first events that I did going out and speaking promoting the seaplane pilots association and we did like a intro to seaplanes and why you would get your rating and what it's like and everything else and um we had a great night. Uh, it was a great event. Uh, it was very well received. Yes. And uh, it was kind of monumental because I brought some gifts for everyone and Seaplane Pilots Association hats, which would come to be a, a kind of a, a special thing that, that went very, very soon after. And I remember after the meeting, uh, we went out to dinner and we were celebrating having a great meeting and we were just excited to be with each other and tell seaplane stories. And, uh, the next day we had a pretty significant event that was life changing. We did. My father was actually going to fuel up our aircraft because the EAA chapter was going to have a fly in around Lake Okeechobee that weekend and we were going to compete in a spot landing contest. So my father was getting fuel for the aircraft that morning in preparation for our flight that weekend. And sadly, he had a heart attack while he was taxiing the aircraft from the ramp of the FBO to go back to the hangar. He fortunately passed away. Mm -hmm. He did no damage to anybody else, just went into a chain link fence and sadly, the media put it all over the news and reported it wrong as the kind of runaway airplane runs into the fence and, and everything else. Um, uh, it was very unusual. I mean, how often do we have a, a pilot perish while taxiing an airplane uh, and have a medical event like that? And it was incredibly sad. And, and it hit home because we had just been together the night before and he was wearing the hat uh, that yes. I gave him. That, that the night before uh, when he was in the airplane. Um, so that event uh, kind of changed our lives because all of a sudden we became a lot closer. Yes. And, <laughs> and Steve, through that, you know, it showed me another act of community 
and how we band together in these times. And you and Mary did not have to come down for my father's service, but you did. And it created this now 11 plus year bond that we have uh, on one level in addition to aviation. Yeah. Yeah. It really started. Uh, we kind of said we adopted you at that point. You were a wayward, chi- a wayward yes. uh, daughter uh, needing uh, a, a new kind of uh, family. And, and we wanted to, to be part of that. So we kind of, we yes. playfully adopted you uh, into our family and uh, enlisted you for this journey of insanity and madness uh, yes. on the seaplane tour throughout the United States. But how much fun. It's been so much fun. <laughs> yes, it has been. <laughs> Driving 18-hour days. It's fun. Yes. Yeah, so in those early days of Steve's tenure with SPA, it was definitely, he was trying to, he had champagne dreams on a beer can budget. <laughs> but he was making things happen. And I could see the vision that he had for the association. And I had worked with other organizations and I was like, this needs to happen. There was a revitalization that needed to come in to the Seaplane Pilots Association. And he made it young and fresh and hip, but also always put safety above everything. And how do we push the message of safety while building community? And how could you not get on, get behind that? That's what we all oh, want for aviation. You. So Steve will always, you'll always be referred to, to me as the fearless leader. <laughs> yes. <laughs> the nickname that she <laughs> yeah. gave me, the yeah. fearless leader. Yeah. Uh, so she'd call me up on the phone whenever she calls me up, fearless leader. <laughs> Happy birthday, fearless leader. <laughs> so, uh, yes, it was an interesting time. Uh, and you, you needed, I think, uh, to think about other things and you kind of threw yourself at aviation and seaplanes and, you ended up adopting your father's airplane, which ended up being a handful uh, where you were in life at that point. Yeah. At that point, I was 25 years old when my father passed. I turned 26 a couple months later and I became an adult because now all of a sudden I had, you had to grow up in a hurry. I did. I had an aircraft. I had, well, actually I had a full running aircraft and then two and a half Piper Cubs <laughs> in parts pieces. in pieces that were a renovation yeah. project. There was boats and, and other things. I was going to say, we came and looked at a boat. Yes. And <laughs> there are all sorts of other things that had to happen, but I was also at this inflection point in my life of I'm doing a career change, trying to get out of the arts, and I knew I wanted to fly for a living. And so now I'm going with no money to even no more money. And now I have an aircraft and a hangar and insurance and $10,000 a year and overhead. When, how am I going to maintain that when I'm trying to figure out how I'm going to start my life over while still dealing with grief? Yeah. And Fort Lauderdale executive, um, uh, we'll just say favors corporate jets, uh, and the rent at FXE is, um, very high by, by, normal standards for hangar rent. So renting there is, is a challenge and to adopt this airplane. And again, two and a half airplanes and in pieces and a hangar full of it, uh, was a big undertaking. I, I mean, my heart was bleeding for you because, um, you were like, I've always dreamed of owning an airplane, but not this way. Correct. (laughs) Correct. Uh, and it's terrible to have an airplane and not be able to afford to fly it. Right. And luckily I was able to maintain the aircraft. Well, first off, the aircraft had to have repairs. Yeah. 
had to have a teardown and uh, had a prop strike with us. Yes. So the engine had to be inspected and correct. So there's all sorts of repairs that had to happen and I had to kind of navigate that and the other things that go with it. And so I was able to maintain the aircraft for a couple of years. But then when I started flying professionally, I was gone for the summers and then I would come home and for the winter and I'm like, I'm really tired, but I feel I need to exercise this plane. And so it just came to a point of, okay, it's time to let it go. It's mm-hmm. time to move on. Another plane will come back into my life. And the next plane that I get will be a plane that I can put to work because you can't put an experimental to work. To work, yeah. So I was like, that's okay. Another aircraft will come into my life. And we just, you know, I go through that. My first airplane, I still have. At one point we sold and we bought back for more than we sold it for. And now it needs a new engine, which I was pricing out yesterday. And I still have this romantic and emotional attachment to the airplane. It's a 1947 Cessna 120 and I can't get rid of it and yet it makes no sense and looking at what it's going to take since it's been sitting for five years in a hangar now to get back in the air it makes no sense and it's it's hard to let one of these airplanes that is emotionally tied to your life go absolutely but I've also learned through this to practice non-attachment which is a challenge for a lot of us because things can come and go there's always another airplane. Right. <laughs> there is. I have my memories. I'm telling myself that. I'm trying to convince yeah, I myself. Get <laughs> I get it. I'm hoping. We're gonna, this is a therapy yes, session. I'll a, send you my bill when we're done. <laughs> so you started volunteering. I think you probably did Sun and Fun first. Yes. And then after the Sun and Fun experience, I think you stayed at the house. And then with God knows how many other people, E.T. and... Uh, yeah. It's fun. <laughs> It was like the the sorority and frat house I never experienced. <laughs> the yeah. SPA frat yeah, house. Yeah, it was fun. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, and then through that experience, you ended up joining us for AirVenture. But that was different because we go on the road with the truck and the trailer. And it's a uh, fifteen or 1,600-mile drive out there. And uh, again, at that time, we didn't have, you know, we were so tight on the budget that I literally, we were driving my truck, my trailer, and we didn't even want to stop at hotels because we were afraid of how much it would cost for SPA for us to stop at a hotel on the way to AirVenture. So we would sleep in rest areas. And uh, you, we were talking about this, a Hardee's or yeah. a something, Carl's Jr. Yeah. or something parking lot. It was rough. But luckily, my nonprofit arts background came into play. I was like, well, I know all about this. You know, <laughs> we, like, we have to save money. Yeah, I get it. <laughs> so I think the timing worked better for SPA. You benefited from that because I wasn't giving you guys grief. I was like, <laughs> I get it. I want to be here. I want to support the cause. And I was always so, you know, I guess I, there was... The, the manager in me that knew we had to manage money. And at the same time, I was like, we can't be doing this to our volunteers. And we, we can't let people see that this is how how tight we are and everything else. And yet, uh, you, not only did you stick in there, but you kept coming back. <laughs> I know. What was I thinking? I was just a wayward dog, I guess. <laughs> so we would work AirVenture and we stayed at this at the time, which SPA had been staying at for many, many years, this rundown farmhouse where we would literally have to go re- fix the toilets and the doorknobs and everything else in the house every year. It's a gem. It was a gem and it smelled and it had a, a, a unique, the farmhouse smell. 
But it's it's classic. It was. And so those were great times because SBA had been staying there for literally, I don't know, 25 years when we finally stopped going there. And I remember having to have the conversation with the owner. And it was so hard because we had become a part of his family. And it was incredibly convenient and it was inexpensive. Uh, but it was just not something I could live with taking the volunteers and the staff to anymore. It was just untenable. But there's some great memories there. Remember there are. me, I had a smashed thumb and we had to. Oh, yeah. And then the nail to help relieve the blood. Stick, stick the oh. red hot nail through my thumbnail. I forgot about that. Yeah. Cards Against Humanity. And yep. Yeah, lots of Leon's ice cream. Ah, frozen custard at Leon's. If anyone knows Steve, they know that he has the metabolism of a 12-year-old boy, (laughs) and he loves his sweets, and he can just eat sweets every night. Well, a woman usually can't because our metabolism doesn't work that well. So after that summer of Leon's, every night at AirVenture, Let's just say the pants didn't fit. And Mary is like, well, when you go on the road with Steve, you got to bring your fat pants and your skinny pants because you never know (laughs) which side you're going to be on. (laughs) Uh, Good times. (laughs) Well, you know, and it was from that first air venture with SPA that Steve Williams and Lisa Reese Uh, came and they they volunteer every year. It seems like Steve is there or Steve and Lisa. Yes. And they said, you have to come to Maine. You have to come to Maine. You have to come to Greenville. It's like our Super Bowl. And so then the invitation went to go to Greenville. And then that's where my love affair with Maine began. Yeah. So uh, from volunteering at at AirVenture, our next event is typically Greenville. So we go to Greenville. And you ended up driving up again on another massive road trip uh, up to Greenville from uh, so originally from her, for her, Fort Lauderdale to uh, Winter Haven and then Winter Haven all the way up to Greenville, Maine, two and a half days. Again, uh, very thin on budget at the time, uh, staying wherever we could stay, but having a great time driving very long hours and going to the world's largest seaplane event in Greenville, Maine. Yeah, and it was life changing. I was like, wow, this is really cool. I always, I enjoyed going to Kermit's place for fantasy, fan, of, fantasy flight. of flight to yeah. go to the splash end during sun and fun. But Greenville was a completely different experience. Like this is where the expression people that do do. And these are real pilots. flying real, seaplane exactly. people that use their seaplanes the way that we all dream of using our seaplanes. Yes. And some for pleasure and some for work, but it was just what a great sense of community. And it was like something I had never experienced before. It was not the flashy frills that you sometimes see at Oshkosh for the big parties for the different aircraft. Uh, at that time, icon parties. Yeah. That were going icon on. party yeah. was insane with the, um, the, the aerialists on yes. the ropes. And then we had the igloo one year on top yes. of the roof of the nightclub yes. with the Yeti. Yes. And then we had the ice room. Yes. Very elaborate, very ornate, which I get it. There's a time and place for those parties. And those are fun, fun events to attend. However, Greenville is just, it's the real, it's the real flying to me. Yeah. And it's a better, it, it fit better for my personality and for what I wanted. And it was just more about the flying and being together. And then the 
competitions. Yeah. You know, I did that first poker run. You got me a ride in the back of a caravan amphib, which at the time I was like, this is so cool. Not only am I getting to see Maine and these camps that I would have never have experienced at the time. Yeah. Real places, real seaplane destinations. Yeah. And I'm like, wow, this is so fun. I'd never done a poker run before. And I'm in the back of a caravan amphib and I'm meeting all these people and seeing all these incredible things. And then the, the canoe race and just how cool. Yeah. That's all. I just can't express how cool of an experience it was. And I was in love. I was in love. And, and to jump in a caravan with Jerry and fly around to all these places, uh, which most people can't even imagine. I mean, if you've, again, you have to go to Greenville, you have to go to the international seaplane fly in, in September, second weekend of September to experience this. And the poker run is such a great way to experience seaplane flying in Maine because it absolutely, we've said this before on the podcast, it, it absolutely rivals Alaska. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's the thing. I did spend one season in Alaska working, not in a flying capacity. And I enjoyed that experience. But when I got to go to Maine, I was like, wow, this is Alaska on the East Coast. This is this doesn't get enough attention Mm -hmm. that Alaska does overshadow. And I get it. It's an it's it is the last frontier. But hey, Maine's got a lot going on, too. There's a huge history here. And we leave for Alaska on Monday. Uh, in what, 72 hours, but, uh, uh, it is incredible, but Maine is also, uh, a whole feeling in itself. And one of the great things about it is all the fly out destinations, there's seaplane bases, there's remote, uh, fish camps that you can go to. Uh, it's just a great state to fly in and it's mostly wooded. It's all forest land and it's just absolutely gorgeous. So, uh, through, the journey of volunteering for SPA, um, you started finishing your ratings. I did. Two weeks after my father passed, I started my instrument rating. And I said, all right, that's, I'm just going to do this. And it took me a while to get it done because I was working. Mm-hmm. And yeah, through many jobs. Through many jobs. <laughs> Yoga right. instruction. Oh, I can't yeah. count all the different. Yeah. I, I pretty much would have sold sold a, a child if I had children for aviation. So it took me a while, but I, I got my instrument rating within the year after mm-hmm. my father had passed. And then it was on to my commercial and then it was commercial. Actually, I went to you, Steve, and I said, I want to get my multi-engine land rating. Where do I go? And you're like, well, why don't you do it in the twin B? Yeah. And I was like, heck yeah, that sounds fantastic. <laughs> so, so you do multi-engine land, multi-engine C, and do it in a multi-engine amphibious tail dragger, which is what I did. Yeah. And, and I was, you followed, followed I did. It. And it was so much fun. And that's a living piece of aviation history that not a lot of people will get to experience. There's only six or seven twin Bs left flying. And I don't, uh, There's there was one coming online out in California. It might be the only one you can do instruction in in the world. Yeah. So it's a very unique airplane to have in your logbook and a great flying airplane. It's a shame there are so few of them. Right. Yeah. So I'm very thankful for that recommendation and that experience. Then at that point, I was like, well, I need a job. And I ended up working in an FBO and I met the gentleman who gave me my flying start. I said, hey, come up to Maine, fly for the summers, mm-hmm. and then we'll bring the planes down to Fort Lauderdale for the winters, fly the Caribbean. I said, Wow. I'm a snowbird and I'm 27 years old. This is fantastic. (laughs) I hit the lottery. So I was with him 
for several years, and then it was time to move on to the regionals. Well, talk about that. What were you flying, and what was the mission that you were flying? I flew... There was a flight school and a charter company, and the charter company had everything from a King Air 90 to a Baron to a Seneca. I got my first start at 510 hours. I did my first 135 ride in a 172RG. There you go. VFR only, no autopilot, flying Chata all over the Northeast in the summers, going into Boston, JFK, in this little RG tower saying best forward speed i'm giving it to you (laughs) i've got all this is all she has (laughs) and one of the really incredible things about that job i was based out of waterville maine is you'd fly into these big hub airports but then you're taking people one of our big destinations was islesboro which is an island off the coast of maine can only get there daytime vfr no lights there's deer always going across the runway to eat blueberries <laughs> and it was just wow you have this amazing juxtaposition of flying i'm going util- from jfk to this little airport off the coast of maine with deer going across it. yeah i was like this is incredible this is how you become an aviator this is how you utilize those skills this is how you become a master of your craft yeah because you were doing the best of Small airport operations and, quite honestly, very challenging large airport operations. And and you were doing that every day and going back, interchanging between the two on it, literally every flight. Yeah. So and did they have a 172 on? They had a 172 seaplane, didn't they? They did, yes. Yeah. And so then I... I was kind of lured. I didn't have my CFI at the time because I was maxed out on paying for ratings. I just started, I was had been hemorrhaging money to get where I was and I needed to recoup the costs. And the owner of that company said, well, I can let you use the aircraft to train for your CFI, just pay for your check ride. And then you can do float instruction and then you can become a company instructor for the 135 because I, at that time, didn't have a passion or a desire to teach primary students. And I said, done deal so I became an instructor and during that next winter and down in Florida and then when the summer came back now I'm able to teach seaplanes which is what I always wanted to do I was like if I'm going to teach I want to be able to teach somebody how to do this amazing fun seat of your pants stick and rudder skill flying Mm -hmm. and at the time I was like why are my worst students Airbus pilots (laughs) I had no idea but I was like there's something about this I don't get it so I did that for a couple years, and I, it's where I really started to, you know, build my understanding for flying floats. Yeah. You know, it was got put to the test every day in different situations. And so you get the, all, the challenge, number one, of teaching people the craft of flying seaplanes. And again, as a very young pilot, uh, I have yes. to add, and then also doing it in this amazing backdrop in Maine. I mean... I mean, that's that's a pretty cool gig. I remember coming up and visiting on, on our way up to different events, and I was like, wow, this is pretty cool. <laughs> yeah, and there was days when I was in, you know, three different airplanes. Yeah. You know, you'd start the day in the King Air, maybe get in the float plane for something and finish in, you know, the Seneca, or it just, who knew? And it was like, wow, this is really cool. It's very diverse. Yeah. That was That is probably a time in my life that's going to be – like bookmarked and special because now I've moved on to other things, but it really was a good foundation. It was hard work. 
Yeah. You know, it was very hard work and long days and summer months, you're just flying and working every day. But, you know, SPA kind of geared me for that. My nonprofit (laughs) art (laughs) background geared me for that. And so, you know, you work really hard, but then you take time and you play hard too. Yeah. Which we always do on the road. Yeah. We try to. Yeah. So, and then they would reposition the airplanes of all places down to South Florida. To Fort Lauderdale Executive Airport. To Fort Lauderdale Executive Airport. I'm home for the winter, baby. (laughs) So. Flying the Caribbean and the Bahamas and going to St. Thomas and a 172. I mean, I I cut my teeth down. That's pretty darn cool. It is cool. Going to St. Thomas from Fort Lauderdale. Was that with E.T.? That yes, I yeah. did that with him. Yeah, so our North Carolina field director, who owns a CB, was ferrying this 172 and went from Fort Lauderdale down to St. Thomas. Or Yeah. 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 I remember seeing how that airplane was loaded and going, oh, God. Yeah. <laughs> but then I flew charter to the Bahamas for the company and, and did stuff. And yeah. which I thought was really funny is here I am flying, we pack this 172 RG with all this food for one yeah. of the islands. And now they're taking the food out of the coolers, putting them in trash bags so that we can fit everything in it. And there was these Alaskan King crab legs. <laughs> now, when I lived in Alaska, I never had the chance to eat the crab so here i am flying king crab legs to To the the bahamas Bahamas. now they put these individually wrapped bag or they're like mozzarella balls and individually wrapped packages but they're in the water well they're next to the king crab legs and i'm looking back and i was like what's that i heard like a drip and so the crab claws had punctured the the mozzarella and now there's this cheese water (laughs) dripping onto the seats that plane smelled for a while afterwards (laughs) so So then we were approached the seaplane pilots association the foundation we had started our effort to open up colorado which provided yet another opportunity for us to come together and you to assist the seaplane association so uh, the Walton Family Foundation uh, was interested in and is still interested in helping us uh, uh, open the state of Colorado to seaplane access. And we were working very aggressively with Ray Hawkins, our field director there, who put in endless amounts of time, still is, and endless amounts of his personal money as an FAA employee. Uh, and through Ray's efforts and the generosity of the Walton family, we got a grant to research all the lakes, all the waterways in the state of Colorado and determine which ones we wanted to try to open, which ones were viable, and also create a database, which is in the water landing directory. One of the great things that we used uh, the digital water landing directory for was to catalog all this information. And so there's a whole role of the water landing directory app that our members probably don't know about, which is when we do a waterway fight or when we're looking to open water in a state, we can use the water landing directory app as a collection point for data. And we were looking for friends or foes of seaplanes uh, the uses of the water. We were, is it a state park, national park? And through the grant, uh, we were able to hire you to do quite a bit of research. And we, I think we looked at like 464 lakes. Oh, yeah. And then I discovered that there's water court and uh, water all law kinds of stuff. and all of these specific uh, geographical considerations 
that happen out west and specifically with invasive species yeah and things that we don't i didn't experience so it was a huge undertaking you know of and learning just to figure out okay how do we catalog this to get the best metrics possible to be able to provide information to the public to show we should we should have waters open Mm -hmm. you know there's no reason we shouldn't but what waters because there's so many and density altitude and can we even get into these bodies of water okay well these bodies of water we can't so we're not going to focus our efforts there let's you know look at these couple bodies and let's you know focus our attention there but even the different restrictions from okay yes you can swim in the water no you can't swim in the water or you can you the, can do the motorized traffic traffic patterns for the boats yes. things that i had never been exposed to so i think this was 2014 when we were doing the study if i remember correctly and we uncovered a bunch of stuff that as an advocate trying to open water and keep water open i had never been exposed to you cannot come in human contact with the lake or you can be taken to a water court. Yes. You can't leave your boat in overnight. I had, Growing up in Florida, that was... Neither of us would have ever thought that. Yeah, way. never heard of such a preposterous thing that you can't leave your boat in a, in a waterway overnight. All of our boats were in the water overnight. Right. <laughs> you couldn't let your boat touch the shoreline. Yeah. Uh, they had all these regulations in Colorado, still do in many cases, and this is the first time as an advocate learning how to fight for seaplane access that I had been exposed to this level of regulation, and it was fascinating. I mean, they, they literally had like certain portions of the lake dedicated to different types of use, so you had sailboats on on this quadrant of the lake and then you had fishing on this side of the lake and they might have a scuba diving training area but they were all literally where in florida we're used to having access you know it's universal you can do any pretty much anything you want on the water to having this incredibly regulated and we documented with your help all of this in the water landing directory and we started whittling down the waterways that we thought we could realistically go after and which ones were best suited for us to fight for to gain seaplane access. Instead of trying to get everything open, we said, okay, look, given the regulations, given the horsepower restrictions, the the speed limit restrictions, the fact that it's in a state park, we actually narrowed down. Uh, We went from 464 to like 119 down to 21 lakes or something like that, that we said these 21 lakes uh, look like potential candidates for us to open. And I think we took that down even further to nine. Let's go after these nine. Yeah. But that was all your research. Well, thank you. It was a fun project to work on. And it was also like, wow, I'm able to use some of my nonprofit background and understanding of how this grant funded project would work and then use my bloodhound sleuthing (laughs) skills to then also expand my knowledge and understanding geographically like okay we have this amazing country but there's restrictions and how do we make this accessible to everybody because this is a place where people come all over the world to fly because their country may be very restrictive so how can we merge this so it was a really amazing it was a great learning experience it was and it was great to feel like I was a part of trying to make a positive and informed change or like a positive change that had a lot of 
information behind it so that the public could be educated yes. as well, not just us seaplane pods. Because we're like, yeah, all water should be open. Well, let's work with what's there and let's try to understand too. So again, uh, huge thanks to Ray Hawkins for all of his work and a huge thanks to the Walton Family Foundation for funding uh, your work. Uh, without uh, these two groups, uh, uh, Ray and, and the Walton Family uh, Foundation, we couldn't have done this work. And uh, we hope to replicate it because it kind of set a, uh, we developed a way to research and catalog and we developed back-end tools in the app that really help us kind of conduct this and filter this kind of thing. We we specifically didn't want to look at water over 8,000 feet. We didn't want to look at water under 500 acres because all of the water in Colorado is essentially over 4,000 feet uh, elevation. And so there's density uh, altitude issues with operating a seaplane, which are greatly exaggerated from a land plane because now we have to break the surface of the water. And so we were able to set up a bunch of criteria and start filtering, okay, what is a good lake? What, what is a lake worth fighting for? You know, what are our targets and where are we going to get the least potential pushback? So uh, it was a great project uh, and we learned a lot and I learned a lot more about how to do my job out of that project. So it's pretty cool. So um, you started with the regionals after that? I did. I went to Express Jets which was Continental Express, and I was there for two years. And then I had a great time flying the Embraer 145, had all these grandiose plans and a potential of what was the equivalent of a flow-through program to United. And then COVID happened, yeah. and everybody's lives changed. And sadly, ExpressJet, who I thought when I made the choice to go to the regionals, I was like, they seem like a sure bet because they've been able to weather the storms that the industry has posed to them over the course of 30 plus years. Well, you know, we got shut down. So now I find myself furloughed <laughs> and my airline shut down and we're in the middle of a pandemic dealing with all the things. Everybody has their own story and unique mm -hmm. experience with it. And now I'm looking for work. And it was a tough time. And I applied, Steve, to 74 places Wow! from June of 2020 until January of 2021 until I got my corporate job. Mm -hmm. And it was like, it was just, it was a really try trying time. Yeah. It was for everyone. I mean, again, I think this, this moment of time of COVID will, will be, you know, go down in history and there'll be so many COVID based stories or already are, but you still were going up to Maine and flying seaplanes. Oh, absolutely. Yes. That never changed. And which the, is great. I mean, that's yeah. a great testament to your passion for seaplanes is through everything. You would always go back and touch base in Maine and get some seaplane flying. In. I was actually the day that I found out express jet was, shutting down and we lost out to commute air. Uh, I was actually in Maine up at camp, had gone up there. I was like, I need to go clear my mind. I need to be around the float plane. I need to be around my friends and, you know, surrogate families. And I'm glad I was because it kind of helped soften the blow. Yes. <laughs> yeah, just a little bit. And a, and a shout out to uh, Steve and Lisa, who also became family. Uh, Steve and uh, Williams and Lisa Reese, who also became kind of family members uh, and uh, took care of you up there quite a bit. So, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so, 
after COVID, uh, things changed. And all of a sudden, the majors started looking for airplanes. Or for pilots, airplanes. They did, yeah. They had parked their airplanes. They were now looking for pilots. Yeah, thing, things were really... Th- things are, the airline industry is in a very unique point right now. It's kind of unprecedented with the hiring. And, you know, 10 years ago, you had to have 5,000 hours just to breathe on a jet. And now other, you know, they're trying to, it's just all changed. You can come right out of a 172 going straight into, you know, a triple seven or a seven, eight. It's crazy. It is. Yeah. I mean, I, I, you know, we'll use Alaska as an example, even for the military, you know, we're going up and seeing these young, young kids, 23, 24 years old, just out of college. They're like, yeah, I have 500 hours total time and I'm captain on a C-17. And we're seeing the, you know, military, big transport jet. You would have never seen that when I was in the military in the the mid to late 80s. Uh, You would have never seen a 24-year-old kid flying a C-141 or a C-5. You you were a colonel. You were, you know, you you were not a first lieutenant uh, or a second lieutenant flying heavy metal. And now you're seeing very young kids, you know, kids, young adults, flying military airplanes, but you're seeing the same thing with the airlines, hiring low-time pilots at, uh, yeah, they gobble them up as fast as they can get them. Yeah, and even in the corporate sector, so I had, as I mentioned before, I did my first 135 ride at like 510 hours in a 172 RG, okay, a gutless cutlass. Mm -hmm. I had FOs who... They had 550 hours and they had a type rating in the Embraer 145, 135. And I'm like, wow, what a time. Yeah. You know, it's just, it depends where you fall on the industry, but. In the hiring cycle. It is, yeah. So you got picked up by a major and you're flying for a major now and enjoying a new way of life. Yes. And I'm now a first officer on the Airbus, the 320 family. The very kind of pilots that you would struggle with when you were a young seaplane instructor. Yes. And now I understand. I understand how they can get lazy. It's all because we have the tray table and how we eat our food. We'll just put it that way. (laughs) Yes. And a bunch of screens and a little stick on the side. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Nothing to get in your way like a yoke or anything. Yeah. No. Yeah. No, not at all. So yeah, it's been a fun journey. By the time I got to the the major that I'm at right now, it was my fourth jet in 14 months. One was a recurrent in there, but it was just a crazy time this post-COVID and how do I pay my bills? How do I get back to where I want to be for my career? And how do I kind of recover what this aviation life is going to look like after covid Right. So I just kind of kept saying yes to opportunities and just I never lost sight of that goal. So I'm very happy to be next month will be one year at the major that I'm at. And I'm very fortunate for that. So now you're all grown up. I a little bit. Yeah, I think so. All grown up flying for the majors. Maybe. But, you know, as most airline pilots, we have to have side hobbies. Yes. You have to have ways to spend that big airline check. Well, I don't know about that. I'm not rolling in it yet. <laughs> not rolling in it yet. So as we say that, that kind of opens up the discussion. So you are putting that major 
uh, airline paycheck to good use because you're now starting the next chapter of your adventure and you have founded Bel Air Seaplane Service. I have. I have finally, I'm finally in an opportunity in my life where I can take that 24-year-old dream that I had when I got my seaplane rating at Browns all those years ago and be like, I'm going to have my own seaplane business. So I started the process last winter to get approved to become an air tour operator, which I got the stamp of approval for that. So super excited, went through that process, have an airplane, have two airplanes on my certificate now, one's on floats and one's on wheels. Mm -hmm. And then we're now going to be, I'm going to be able to do float instruction again, which I love. And it's in the Belgrade Lakes of Maine, very idyllic to me. Beautiful area and a 172 on straight floats. Great right. training airplane. Yes. And then I have a 172 on wheels as well as just an option. You never know what can happen. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, it's it's a really exciting time. I, I always knew I wanted to get to this point. I didn't know how it would look or or how long it would take. And the community and the family that I've created with within the seaplane community has really allocated that for me. And I've, I've had some great mentors and people to just kind of help guide me and have, have access to it. And it's like, here I am. It's like, I have this dream and I'm just making it happen. And yeah, some people could maybe get really intimidated by that and get freaked out about it. And I'm like, well, I have to do from time to time. Absolutely. Yeah. (laughs) But yeah, this is, this is what I want to do. This is my, this is my passion. This is the joke is I get paid to burn jet a so I can play with a hundred low lead. There you go. And I really (laughs) just want to keep the main seaplane community going because in the 11 years since I went to that first Greenville, it's like, wow, Maine is this vivacious community of seaplane flying and this is like nothing i've ever experienced and over the last several years things have the landscape has changed there's been a lot of attrition so maine had one you know if it didn't have the most seaplanes and it had less than probably florida and a lot we know it had less than florida and alaska but you still had like minnesota and and washington state and maine were major hubs for seaplane activity and what I have to give credit to for the the main community is how active they were and again the number of destinations the fact that you had PK floats uh, now Claymar floats you have manufacturers manufacturing seaplanes in Maine you have local communities embracing seaplanes so it's it was and still is an incredibly healthy community to fly and own and operate seaplanes in but you had these large historical figures just like brown seaplane base here in florida you had twitchells you had uh uh, jay uh you had mary build uh doing instruction in naples in naples uh and we've watched a lot of these very historic or very well revered seaplane businesses having either loss of life and attrition due to that in the case of Twitchells or just change of life where we've lost the access to these seaplane bases or we've lost access to these seaplane training facilities. And there, you know, it's our mission at the Seaplane Pilots Association to make sure that that 
is carried on, that we find replacements. And so you, by starting uh, Bel Air, are creating a, a replacement. So with the loss of something like Mary Build's operation or Twitchell's, you know, it's important for us to establish this next generation of seaplane service and business and opportunity. And you're doing that. So thank you. Well, thank you for, for that. And uh, a beautiful new website, which you, uh, what's the, do, uh, tell them the domain to go visit because it's a beautiful new website. com on Facebook and on Instagram. So splashing this summer, come splash with me. <laughs> <laughs> we're getting it. We're finally getting a seaplane DPE back online in Maine for the summer, which that was another situation that we ran into in Maine was just the DPEs had changed hands and, and things things were just different. So now we, as we all face all too often, it's difficult to get seaplane DPEs. So there's one coming back online. So yeah, we're, I'm super excited that we're going to be able to offer this for not only Maine, but for people who want to do a destination seaplane rating. Yeah. Like, yeah. Go up, fly someplace different. And yeah. even if it's brushing up, doing a flight review or something like that, it's a great option. So consider going up there and flying in a different geographic area. That's absolutely beautiful. And you can help out our youngest seaplane school. Well, thank you. <laughs> I'd love to fly with, with everyone. And then Steve, you should come up and fly with me when you come up I for will. Greenville. Yes, absolutely. Oh. Wow. Will that be a full turn? Uh, yeah. Kind of a completion, uh, not completion, but a, a nice continuation of a journey. Yeah. The student becomes the master. <laughs> <laughs> and the master becomes the student. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So that'll be interesting. And we all know I don't have any control issues. <laughs> none, none whatsoever. <laughs> none whatsoever. I do want to give a two plug. captains next to each other. Oh, that's yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's a scary thought. I do want to give a little plug for Mary Build. Yeah. She wrote this amazing book about her life, her memoir, and she did it was an amazing cornerstone for seaplane service instruction in Maine. And her story is incredible. Learning to fly in her early forties and after just her story is absolutely incredible. You want to talk about someone who was who overcame a lot of challenges, but was also able to contribute so much to our seaplane community and the next generation of flyers. She has a really great book. So yes. anybody who wants to, male or female, it doesn't matter. She has a great story. And I don't think we actually sell it, but we will. And she's great. And she's been a great part of my journey uh, since uh, coming on at Seaplane Pilots Association. And you and I, I can remember, I mean, I was brand new, relatively new executive director within a year or two of taking the job. And we went up there for Greenville and Mary had this incredibly beautiful PA-12 on Whip Air Amphibs. And we wanted to go out and visit Igor Sikorsky at his fish camp, the great grandson of Igor Sikorsky, who operates a Cessna 172 on straight floats as his daily driver and his lovely wife, Karen. And we wanted to go out and spend some time and get to know them better. I had known them for 20 years via phone and email and had never met them. And Mary said, here, um, you've flown the airplane before. Here's the keys. Um, bring it back in one piece and have fun. <laughs> yeah. That was my first time meeting her too. And what an experience. <laughs> and here's the keys to a PA-12 yeah. Amphib and away we go for a week. So, um, 
And she still uh, is building incredibly beautiful airplanes and is still a force. And she does a lot of speaking and she's a great mentor and she's a great um, uh, inspirational force within the community. Absolutely. So hats off to you, Mary. Thank you. Yeah, thanks, Mary. <laughs> thanks for letting us use your airplane, which is on our belt. Yeah. <laughs> Yes. Uh, UK, if you buy a belt from the Seaplane Pilots Association, her belt or her airplane that we're talking about, uh, three six three five Mike is is on the belt uh, all around it. So, what have we failed to talk about that we don't want to sign off without telling people about flying seaplanes, about women pursuing this career, about anyone pursuing this career and overcoming adversity. Uh, the challenges, the roadblocks, or what advice or, or, you know, tidbit do we not want to overlook? I think one thing, because when you said, well, for women specifically, well, let's just throw that out the window. I like to be in a space where we don't create separatism. We don't create division. And I think, especially with SPA, it has never been about a gender. It's always been about let's support the cause. No one ever looked at me lesser than because of my gender or my age. And I think a lot of people get hung up sometimes on creating these divisions because they feel it creates unity. Just let that go. Just be who you are. It's going to be a challenge. Anything worth having in life, you have to work hard for And you're going to fail and you're going to cry, but you're going to pick yourself up and you're going to keep going. And I think that's the best thing we have to tell ourselves is just be yourself, work hard. And if you want something to happen, you will achieve it. It'll, it'll, it'll just happen. And so that's kind of my parting thing. (laughs) You know, it's not too, too deep. It's just work hard. And the, the community that, and it doesn't really matter if it's aviation or not. If you find a community of like-minded individuals, they're going to support you. You know, I'm succeeding because you're succeeding and vice versa. So find people that build you up, that encourage you, but that also tell you the truth. And you also have to have some thick skin to be like, hey, I'm not perfect. I need to learn too. Yeah. I need to be able to take the advice that I'm getting. And sometimes it's hard to hear. But as I can remember conversations after you went for job interviews or had applied somewhere and it didn't work. Yeah. And, and having that difficult conversation afterwards. Yeah. But generally, people want to help you succeed. I mean, uh, we want to mentor and, and help other people uh, by nature. And I think the seaplane community overall has been very good. Uh, about that. I'm very proud of the seaplane community. And we've had some conversations in all fairness. We have had conversations about maybe some of the differences at the airlines where you're, uh, you're, you're an airline pilot in a van full of airline pilots, but there is a point where unfortunately um, not all, not all things, not all things are fair. Yeah. And I don't get invited to go out sometimes, you know, and yeah, there's a lot of things that I've experienced that are unfortunate, but it's people's insecurities and people choosing to create division for whatever reason. And you have to know that it's not you as long as you're being the best person you can be and you have a good heart. You got to know that people have hiccups too. And it's not always, don't take it personal. 
Yeah. You can't and just take keep things personally. Pushing forward. And and if you want to go and you're not invited, say, hey, I, I want to go too. Or if you just said you're not my kind of people because you didn't invite me, then just don't go. Yeah, it doesn't matter. <laughs> don't be afraid to be yourself and don't be afraid to speak up. Yeah. You know? So good so. stuff. So what's your favorite memory so far? Of my flying journey? Yes. Oh my goodness. There's so many. I have to say there's a lot of a lot a lot of things flying flying in Maine has been my best times and being able to take the float plane into some backcountry water and there's nobody around and it's beautiful and it's peaceful you know and but then on the flip side I love being able to take a child or here this is what I'll say going into Greenville and last year we were I was coming out of the dock with my friend who's also my, my business partner Doug Manter and there was a dock full of little girls and their mom moms or or older just older women who were there. Yeah. I don't know what they were so it was a group of let's say like 10 young ladies and Doug says to me look at all of them you're inspiring them because they're going to see a lady driving this plane and I'm like wow I didn't even think about that I just saw people happy because they see float planes Mm -hmm. you know so that's what I love I love being able to bring smiles to people's faces with the float plane because sometimes I don't get that going to work. <laughs> <laughs> and there's no greater gift than to inspire people. And, and I, you know, that's one of the greatest things I've enjoyed about our relationship is hopefully getting to inspire you to continue, even when it was hard with losing your father. And I give you great, you know, uh, credit for the fortitude of losing your father in an airplane and still pursuing the path and the career and never kind of wavering from that. Well, thank you, Steve. He will be very proud of you. He's looking over your shoulder. Yeah. Yeah. I know he was with a big smile and, and it's hard as I'm, I start to cry. Uh, he's looking over your shoulder with a, a big smile on his face for what you've done with your life and, and the journey you've taken. Thank you. I appreciate <laughs> that. Yeah. I know he was proud of me when he was alive. I wish he could have been here to see all to these see what you blossomed into. Yeah. But at the same time, I feel that him passing it changed the out the, gave the, more urgency it, well, i saw a lot more urgency in you yeah and it also made me realize what tomorrow is not promised yeah. and life is short and i don't want to waste it i don't want to waste it i want to cherish every moment i have so I, I had to seize it yeah seize the day and i'm also just not i'm too Harper stupid <laughs> i'm too stupid to give up <laughs> <laughs> and, and and redheaded which comes uh, with a certain amount of stubbornness and tenacity when us redheads um, aren't afraid to get into it. Fair enough. Fair <laughs> enough. Steve, thank you for this opportunity today. It was nice to kind of reminisce, and hopefully the people listening will get a little tidbit of... Inspiration or motivation to go stop dreaming it and live it, or also just maybe have some sense of the heartfelt uh, beauty of, of your journey and... We're thankful for everything you've done for SPA, all the volunteer time. It's been, you know, it's great to have you in our lives. Thank you. <laughs> so Thank we you hope you enjoyed this very special episode. Another, they're all special, uh, but to get um, to know Melissa Grabiak a little bit better, uh, please go visit com and consider going and visiting her and flying with her new seaplane service. 
because she is a great woman to and person to support, and uh, we want to see her succeed in her journey. And we'll continue to follow her and have her come back uh, as things progress. But until next time, share the podcast with your friends. Uh, Keep on listening. We're working hard. We're about to take uh, the podcast on the road to Alaska. We hope to get several episodes recorded up there. And until next time, fly safe and fly often, my friends. We'll see you soon. We are so glad you joined us today. If you like today's show, I highly encourage you to join the Seaplane Pilots Association and become a member of the largest seaplane community in the world. Members receive Water Flying, the only full-color glossy magazine dedicated to the seaplane community. And it's available in both printed and digital form. Your membership also includes access to the Water Landing Directory app, which has the Seaplane Flight School directory and a calendar of seaplane events not only here in the United States, but around the world. The association hosts regular educational workshops, safety seminars, and gatherings for seaplane pilots and anyone with a passion for seaplanes. So look us up online at seaplanes.org, join our community, and support our mission of protecting and promoting water flying.